Did you actually consult him and say you should probably start wearing an ascot? Uh, no, no, no. He he came up. I want to make clear to all the audience <laughs> that the ascot was his idea. Are you suggesting that I should have said, I should have <laughs> moved forward with it? <laughs> This is episode 204 of Bourbon Pursuit. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Per usual, we have to go through a little bit of the news. On June 22nd, Peerless Distilling is releasing their four-year bourbon. If you caught the live podcast with Corky Taylor, then you may have heard about it. If not, no worries, as it will be released at a later date. We are very excited for Corky, Caleb, and the entire Peerless team for having the will to hold back sales until this product reached four years old. When we get a chance to try it, we're going to let you know what we think too. Buffalo Trace Distillery is now releasing their next installment in the Old Charter Oak series called French Oak. The Old Charter Oak collection is designed to explore, honor, and celebrate the role of oak in making great whiskey. The oak trees used in this brand vary from country of origin, species, U.S. state, and even age. There's century barrels that are being used from oak trees that are 100, 200, and 300 years old. For this newest release, Buffalo Trace obtained a small number of barrels from France in 2007 and filled them with Mashville number one. This is the same Mashville used for standard Buffalo Trace, Eagle Rare, amongst a few others. The old Charter Oak has now been bottled and will be available for retail in late June. Last week, we ventured out to Barton for another 1792 foolproof selection. The day started out a little bit different than most because it was raining and there were storms in the area. That meant we had to do our barrel selection inside at the tasting bar at the gift shop instead of the Rick House because they don't allow people there during the chances of lightning. We made the best of it and we had six barrels to choose from. We narrowed it down to three and that's, I guess, fortunate that we ran out of samples there with inside the gift shop. But wouldn't you know, the skies parted and we got to sample our barrels inside the Rick House to come away with a winner. After selecting it, we found out that it was barreled on 229, which, of course, was a leap year. We were also joined by Father Matt, a fellow Patreon supporter and Catholic priest from Northern Ohio, who blessed our bourbon for us, too. I mean, how often can you say something like that happens? It was truly a memorable experience. If you want to join us on Barrel Picks, go ahead and sign up and be a part of our Patreon community at patreon.com slash bourbonpursuit. If you follow us on social media, you would have seen Ryan and I at Willet this past Saturday. We've got big news to share, so you're going to have to wait to hear more about that one. Let's just say we tasted through 11 barrels and came away with two. Uh, that's enough for the teasers for now. For today's show, we, we have to just talk about Peggy because we love Peggy No Stevens. She's an encyclopedia of great information about many bourbon brands. She was featured back on episode 198, talking about wood influence, along with bourbon and food pairings with The Stave is the Rave. But this time, we get to hear her complete story. You may not know it, but she's one of the biggest influencers behind many of the great distillery experiences that you get to see on the bourbon trail, as well as outside of the state, too. Peggy is a major player when it comes to diversity in the bourbon world. She's a pioneer because she played a big role behind the Bourbon Women organization that we've also featured on the show previously. Peggy is an in incredibly talented person that has shaped the industry from being in front of people leading them at bourbon tastings to crafting those one-of-a-kind experiences behind the scenes. Now with that, let's hear from our good friend Fred Minnick with Above the Char. 
I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. When I was a little boy, one day, a man came to our house. He wore a suit, nice leather shoes, had a suitcase. He took my father to the table and pulled out a suitcase and dropped five nice leather-bound books. He flipped them open. The pages were silky, smooth to the touch. And he pointed at me, and he said, Sir, your son can learn the world through Britannica encyclopedias. My father, very interested in my education, bought the encyclopedias, and I just sat there for pretty much my entire life. I don't think I ever really looked at him. Well, I might have pulled him out for a report here and there, but the encyclopedia man always struck me as like one of the greatest salesmen in the world. And today, the encyclopedia is gone. So where do we go for information these days? Well, obviously, it's the internet. But there's one source in particular that seems to drive the conversation with most people, and that's Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not a, a site that I'm actually particularly fond of because it crowdsources information, and a lot of the information is wrong, to include people winning awards. You see a lot of political efforts there to kind of try to change people's Wikipedia pages. I have a Wikipedia page, and... You know, people go in there and tinker with that all the time. That's great. That is what it is. Oh, side note, I was the most important ascot wearer once upon a time. Someone else took that spot. But the fact is, is that Wikipedia is where we go for information today as a society. Now, go on there and look for Jimmy Russell, Jim Rutledge, Elmer T. Lee, Jeff Arnett, you name them, any kind of prominent person in the American whiskey scene, and you won't find them. I don't know if it's the brand's fault for not trying to make sure that their iconic people are on Wikipedia pages, or if it's simply that American whiskey hasn't really crossed over into the pop culture of the internet yet. But I think we really should change that. So if you have the abilities, get on Wikipedia today and add a master distiller. Go add somebody who's important to American whiskey. Because for a lot of people, if you're not on Wikipedia... You don't exist. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, this idea came to me from a follower on Twitter. If you have an idea for Above the Char, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. That's at Fred Minnick. Again, that's at Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, 
and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Fred recording on site at one of our guests' place. So we're actually honored to be on site again together doing this. But today, th- I had the opportunity of meeting Peggy uh, a few times, probably a, probably, probably a few years ago was the first time. And then the last time, which I don't know if it's going to go out in recording, depending on how this release counter is going to go, but I had the opportunity to record her at the Higher Proof Expo doing some stuff with bourbon and food and chocolate pairings and tasting and stuff like that. And so that was kind of like my really first time really meeting her and kind of knowing some of the the depth of knowledge that that she really had to offer. But Fred, you've got even a more personal connection to our guest today. Yeah. So Peggy and I go way back and if it wasn't for her, I would never have written the book Whiskey Women. Um, and we've become friends. I would say, you know, I don't have a sister. She's the closest thing to a sister I have. And she's the uh, godmother to my son, Julian. So, so we are very close. And, you know, when we, talk, when we talk about bourbon coming back, you know, this woman has done as much for bourbon as anybody. She um, basically was a founder of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. I mean, it was essentially her idea she, it was her idea to create the, uh, the launch pad of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail at the Fraser Museum. And she founded a little organization called Bourbon Women. And oh, by the way, she was the first female master taster, uh, <laughs> worked with a lot of iconic brands and like Woodford Reserve. So she's very influential in this world of bourbon. And to me personally, just one of my best friends. Well, I think uh, I think we put up on a pedestal and patted that ego enough. We should probably go ahead and introduce her. So today on the show, we have Peggy No Stevens. Peggy is the master taster and also an experiential expert. So Peggy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I was thrilled to be on this, especially with you two guys. There you go. You, you made it. All right. We're 100 and whatever episodes in. We finally got you on. And right? you waited this long for me. <laughs> no. I don't know if that's a compliment. I don't know. Well, I, I was told there was all these rejections because, you know, Kenny and uh, Ryan were just... They weren't. They weren't ready for you. Not Is that ready. what it was? Yeah, we had to. Really, yeah. We had to build our build our confidence. Build the reputation. It's kind of how it yeah. works. Actually, it's very true. They're they're very sensitive. <laughs> Those two are very sensitive. <laughs> so they can crush your ego pretty quickly. There you go. They'll look at the text messages, and you, you'll know exactly like how bad we can <laughs> we can re- we really like hate ourselves. But anyway. I want you to first talk about what is an experiential expert. I have something. I'm just going to guess that it has to do something with these these tasting pairing things that you do as well. Is that well, a the- little bit? I mean, that's part of it. Um, experiential, and a lot of people don't understand that word fully, but it's about the experience someone has being interactive, uh, hands on, 
you know, engaging a consumer, touching them emotionally. It's all of those things. So for years and years in the beverage industry, I managed visitor centers and distillery operations uh, for the consumer. And so through all of that, I learned how to really engage the consumer, whether it be on a tour or teaching or educating or food pairing. And so when I started my company 11 years ago, I decided that that's where I would put a big part of my focus. So I work with kind of the big boy brands and I work with craft distilleries all over, creating experiences for consumers on a tour path. So give us an idea of who you've you actually consulted for. So when somebody goes sure. in here, they're going to be like, oh, I know that Peggy's had something to do with this place. Right. Uh, well, recent, most recent, I guess, is the Lux Row Distillery in Bardstown. If you visited there, worked with the Lux family. And uh, gosh, I guess that project was almost a two-year project. Very enjoyable. And then uh, the uh, American Stillhouse for Jim Beam. That was my very first project, actually, when I started my company. And then that led to the Urban Stillhouse, which we helped design, and also their Global Innovation Center, which we helped design the interior and what a distributor or retail would experience, you know, if they went on tour there. So that was one of them. Peerless Distillery comes to mind, which I have a little Peerless today for you uh, after this is over or during whatever you want. We'll flip a quarter. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Worked a little bit on the Michter's project. And then, of course, I, I go beyond the borders of Kentucky. So uh, a couple Tennessee distilleries like Old Forge Distillery, Thunderbird uh, Distillery, and have one up and coming that is going to be announced, I think, very shortly. Well, awesome. So I guess what what are those things that uh, if somebody is trying to open up a, a visitor experience you know, it, it kind of seems that there's there's almost like a formula nowadays. You know, you have you have a little bit of history, you got a little bit of retail, but what do you kind of bring to this table that they couldn't just go and say, well, I'll just go visit four or five places, write down what I can find, and then we'll go build it ourselves. Well, you know, it's, it's I'm funny you, I'm because- I'm you to justify your job here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, technically it is a process because I think that you have to design- a visitor center and distilleries in phases, you know, from what is your story? You know, that's where I try to keep people grounded. Where's your authenticity? What do you want the consumer to care about? I call that the takeaway. You know, if you've ever gone on vacation and you've had a great time and you get back in your car, your airplane, and you're headed home, and you say, wow, that was just a great experience because you always have a takeaway. And that's what I try to get all of the visitor centers that I work with to to put their anchor in the ground and say, this is what we stand for. This is our story, whether it be history related uh, or innovation related or family related. You know, it just has to be true to them. You know, from that, we start to what I call three-dimensionalize it. How do you bring that story to life, whether it be through exhibits, whether it be through the production process or the engagement of the tour guide. And then once we design uh, the exhibits, we work with architects and construction companies to help fabricate it. And after that point, you know, usually we're writing the script. Uh, so we'll help with script writing, the product profile, how we deliver a tasting. Now, when you say script writing, sure. this is like what, when you the take tour a tour. The tour guides would say. Yeah, exactly, like Absolutely. word for word as much as they can. That's right. We we are pretty granular in our business that we even teach the tour guides how to tell a story, how to train in customer service, how to deal with difficult people on a tour. So yeah, we, how to deal with Kenny, you're saying? Yeah, he's one that <laughs> actually we teach how to throw out, right? The, the loud mouth. Uh, yeah. yeah. But it's really, know, we know more. it's really soup to nuts, and that's what makes a great 
experience, when you thread all of the things together that I just mentioned, because that's when you can say I had a surround sound experience. And so that's what we try to capture with a consumer. You know, Kenny, when you had said like, you know, anybody can just open like a visitor center. To me, that's a little bit like I've had a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I can write a book. I want to write a book, you know, that sort of thing. A lot of people think they can write a book, but then when they get down to writing a book, you know, they realize they can't do it. Visitor centers are actually very complicated. They are. And in the United Kingdom, go around to the, the Scotch whiskey, whiskey distilleries and you'll see how uh, how far ahead American whiskey visitor centers are from, from those facilities. Um, and actually, you kind of cut your teeth on probably what is considered one of the, the hallmarks of the Bourbon Trail and Woodford Reserve. What was I did. What were those days like? Well, I'll tell you, I look back at my Woodford days as probably one of the best times of my life. We're talking mid-90s? Yeah, mid-90s at yeah. 1994 to be exact. And it was a two-year renovation, give or take a few months. Uh, it was the brainchild truly of Owsley Brown, who I think was probably one of the most intelligent men that I've ever worked for um, and worked with. And it was when the bourbon industry was having its resurgence. You know, we were seeing a difference in how we market and the consumer going back to kind of some of the retro cocktails. So it was perfect timing to create this uh, vision for the distillery. And so the beauty of it is the team that I worked with, um, people like Kevin Curtis, uh, Dave Shurick, you've probably heard those names. Uh, they were right alongside with me on the production level. And we were almost like a, a small entrepreneurial spirit uh, to get that Woodford Reserve to where it is. The first year we opened, we were so thrilled. We had 9,000 people. And we thought, wow. tremendous. Uh, mm-hmm. And now it's well over probably 150,000. Yeah, I they get say. that like in probably two weeks now or That's something. That's right. But yeah. I was really fortunate uh, because Brown Forming gave me a really great pedigree. I was able to travel around with Woodford Reserve and see other experiences. You just meant, mentioned the Scotch Whiskey Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Ireland, Mexico. Uh, one of my fondest memories and one of the best still today for me, as far as an experience goes at a visitor center's Cuervo. We, oh, really? literally, mm-hmm. we literally went out in the agave fields with a machete and they taught you how to hack with the machete, the agave plant, and you're in the dirt and it's hot and sweaty and gritty, that's an experience. You know, so those are some of the the small things that we learned, you know, to try to create Woodford. And then I went on eventually to manage the Jack Daniels uh, visitor experience and all the brand destinations. I got an idea for you. So Tell you, me. you can bring it Love bring it. it to bourbon now. Now you can say, okay, well, you got to go out to the cornfield. You got to go get six husks of corn. Then you got to come back and you've got to get all the kernels off. And I'm going to give you a, a pest and mortal. And then you got to- It gotta, will happen. Yeah. You got to chop all these up. We're going to make your bourbon in one day. And or- that's experiential. <laughs> that, that's it. I mean, that's experiential because see, I think the consumer these days, they're so well-educated. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to be entertained. They're dying to be entertained. And so all they want to do is participate with you. And I think that when the industry realizes that and they allow them to play a little bit at the distillery, it's, it's much more memorable. It can much be free labor too. That's true. That's right. You know, that's true. That's it. Labor. We'll put all the consumers on the bottling line. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, they'd be like, I'd love to. Exactly. But another question that kind of goes, I want to ask you know, one more while we're still on this topic because you had talked about scripts earlier. 
do you still, are you trying to find people that are like, let's get away from the whole, oh, bourbon, 51% corn. Like, because it's the same thing you kind of hear repetitive over and over again. Now, do you come through and say like, it's just part of like what it is. You have to cater to the, the everyday person that might not know this. Or do you say like, well, maybe we can create an elevated experience that we can slide that in there, but let's not focus on like the basics for a lot of these people. Well, actually, it's a little of all of that. I believe in tiers of tours. And in other words, there is something for everyone. There's kind of your Bourbon 101 tour where you do learn some of the production methods, but then give the tourists an opportunity to go to that next level, maybe more of an intermediate tour where they dig a little deeper in the production process and the history and heritage. And then for the advanced lover, uh, in true bourbon enthusiasts, you might have private classes or cocktail classes. or So I really believe in those tiers. Uh, it's just a matter of convincing, you know, the, the distillery that one size doesn't fit all. Mm-hmm. You know, that you, you really have to offer. Because our consumer today, I think, is more demanding than ever, don't you, Fred? I do. And they also like to call things out more so than ever. And Most you have certainly. more avenues for them to do that. You got Yelp. You know, you've got uh, Google reviews, and then you certainly have the podcasts and the bloggers and That's so right. forth. And one of the things that typically comes up from these um, some of these smaller groups that come out, and they kind of create they create a story, and then they talk about it on on their tour. Let's take Boone County for example. They they oh, talk that was about one of my their, clients actually. That's, yeah, that's right. right. I knew that, and they they, they use that heritage. And, you know, some people, they're just like, just talk about the whiskey. We don't care about the heritage. We don't feel like it's, you know, genuine to this brand or or anything. So do you, do you ever, how do you balance that, that effort to, um, you know, to bring out like a cool story and, you know, staying with, you know, the contemporary desire to not create false backstories. I agree. And and I think it's what we all do or try to do is we have to respect our history because even though it might not have been history of the whiskey, it was history of their culture and their surrounding area. And that's what mm-hmm. Boone was. You know, they mm-hmm. talk about their culture of their backyard and then they tie it in, you know, to the whiskey. And so respecting the history, but then also having an appreciation for the modern day and innovation. You know, where are we going today? So I think it's what I call a balance, kind of a juxtaposition between past and present. And that's what you have to bring together. You know, Kenny, we see a lot of these brands that, you know, talk about like my grandpappy carried the yeast back on his toes Mm -hmm. from uh, the Atlantic. And that's not balance. You know, that's, that's, that's too far. And so like, if you're, if you're in the boardrooms and you're saying, guys, you can't do that, then God bless you. That's right. You know, because we... We've gotten tired of that over the years, and I we still see it, but it, it's not as prevalent as it was, I'd say, ten years ago. Yeah, and I think because of all the craft distilleries, you know, that I work with and for, uh, I, I try so hard to say it's okay if you're sourcing whiskey. Just say so. Mm-hmm. You know, tell them where you're getting it, why you chose the barrel stock that you did, how long it's going to be before your product comes out, because I think authenticity is really important. And that's another reason why I think the tourists don't want to go to distillery after distillery and say 51% corn, because everybody's going to say the same thing, and it's just dinner and a movie. Mm-hmm. Let's jump on that authenticity thing for a sure. second. Some, some just hit me, Kenny. You know, we're in this we're in this uh, day and age where anybody can come in and say they're an expert of of, of bourbon. Um, you actually became a master taster at 
Brown Foreman. Explain to us what the difference is between someone coming up the ranks um, in the industry and earning that title and, and then someone just taking it. Sure. Well, I think that in our industry, what uh, so many people don't understand is that we didn't have a formal definition of, for example, if you wanted to be a sommelier, then you do all the credentials associated with that. You take all the tests and you become a sommelier. You know, in our industry, it's kind of truly up to each and every distillery to decide titles, uh, vocabulary, uh, credentials, and master distiller is very different than master taster. Master taster is very different than master blender, but each distillery is going to set the guidelines and training, you know, to advance an employee to become in that position. So again, I think I was in the right place at the right time. Lincoln Henderson was the master distiller at Woodford at the time. And I believe it was about 2001 uh, where the general manager of Woodford, uh, Lincoln, they thought I had a really good palate. I kind of have a a bit of a culinary background. So I think in food terms, and I think that helps so much in identifying and descripting whiskey. So I had written the tour. I understood production. I have a bit of a science mind. Uh, so they asked me if I would formally train with them to become a master taster. At the time, and my naivete, I think I didn't realize that there were no women master tasters in the industry, mm-hmm. if you can believe it. So, of course, I was eager you know, to learn, loved doing tastings, um, really respected Lincoln and his knowledge and years of experience. So uh, we would do, you know, sensory training. Uh, we would, you know, drill barrels and, you know, pull from it. And he would teach me the different aspects of that. Uh, I had to do quite a quite a few things in the production area. And it's kind of like the whiskey. You know, you're not ready till the master distiller says you're ready. Mm-hmm. And after a certain period of time, that's when they gave me my certificate. Um you know, and it was put in the newspaper. And that's when I first found out when it hit the newspaper, it hit the AP. Oh, wow. And went across and it as, as big news that a woman has become a master taster in a male predominant, you know, predominant world. And um, that's when it hit me that this was really something more special than I ever dreamed, than I ever thought. And I'm happy to say now there's many master tasters, master distillers, master blenders that are female. Um, I just happened to be, I think, in the right place at the right time that that happened. Share with us the um, when that news broke, the the DJ who called you. Well, when I mentioned AP, right, it hit yeah. the AP, so 120 uh, newspapers it hit. And, of course, there was so much interest from radio stations, television stations, and it was something I wasn't, I don't think I was quite mentally ready for in the fact that there was a particular radio station, kind of a shock jock, uh, that wanted me to come and do a uh, series, or not a series, but an interview, rather. And they were kind of getting a kick out of the whole piece of the newspaper article that said she doesn't swallow. Mm. You know, she swirls and spits. And they kind of wanted to play on that a little bit. And I remember that that's when it hit me that I was going to be different. Um, I was not going to go along, just get go along to get along. Mm-hmm. And I said no to the interview um, because I didn't think that that was going to ever be my persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not what I wanted to be known for. I wasn't going to joke along with it. I wanted women to be taken seriously and in a way like men would be. 
You know, and I, yeah. I don't think there'd be uh, too many radio stations that would ask a man to do that. Uh, so I said no to the interview and, you know, it wasn't very favorably received, uh, but I stood by my, stood by my uh, values on that. Do you think we're better today than we, we were um, from a media perspective? I think yesterday? N- not really. Uh, from a media perspective, you ask. Yeah. So um, I don't think so, but I guess I want to expand that not just to whiskey. I think on a media level, there are plenty of uh, reality TV shows that you know try to get the worst of you, the angle to make you not look great. Uh, I think there are plenty, you know, of uh, Facebook video. You know, you see this all the time in social media that someone's captured at a certain moment, YouTube video, all of those things. And so, no, I I don't think media is better about it. But it goes beyond whiskey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about the whiskey industry? Is it, obviously we've seen um, growth of diversity, but you still... I still get the sense from, from from women that it's not where they want it to be in terms of the diversity. Right. I think we are on a great trajectory right now. I think there's never been a better time for women to be in our industry. Um, the amount of executives and vice presidents, CMOs, presidents of uh, the different distillery or spirits companies, it's really enlightening and I'm so glad to see it. So there, I think putting women uh, in better positions has certainly improved. Uh, Look at the production side of things. We have more master distillers that are women. All of that's wonderful. My question, I think, to the industry is really once you're out in the field. And when I say out in the field, as far as sales representatives go that are female, um, you know, marketing representatives who do kind of the day-to-day uh, job of beating the streets and going to bars and restaurants. And it, it's more of how are they treated these days? You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the question mark for me. Um, but I know, you know, internally it has definitely improved as far as positions go. Hmm. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I, I can kind of see what you're saying because you're still going into even probably even more male-dominated culture of of liquor store owners and retailers and bars and stuff. That yeah, these people have to go and they have to sell. They have to talk right. about their product. Right. They have to probably put up with some shit every once in a while too. I'm sure that's probably not far from the case of what you're what you're what you're hinting at here. Um, you know, one thing I kind of rewind a little bit about that you had talked about going up and becoming the the master taster with inside of is it just Woodford or Brown Foreman in general? What it was, was the, Woodford Reserve specifically? So with Woodford Reserve right. specifically, kind of talk about what. Those that individual process means, or like, how was how was Wes like your your Miyagi, uh, if you will? How was he? You Lincoln? How, Lincoln, you mean Lincoln? Oh, sorry, no, I'm sorry. How right. was Lincoln? I'm sorry, yeah, I apologize. How was Lincoln kind of like your your Miyagi here and your, yeah. your Daniel son, if you will? So right. the wax on, wax off sort of scenario. He got so caught up on that scenario that uh, Miyagi. Thing. <laughs> I know. I, for, I forgot <laughs> who Mister Miyagi was. <laughs> it was like it was like from the Karate Kid. You know, you gotta have you know, and you're maybe maybe a Yoda, if you will. Or, there we go. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I, again, Lincoln to me was was so refreshing every time he came to Woodford Reserve because he wanted to be as much a part of it as anybody who worked there. Uh, and he was the master distiller, of course, but you know had to go back and forth to Louisville. He traveled around the world, you know, worked a lot in Japan, et cetera. And every time he came in, um, we would have great conversation. He was a foodie. 
so we always had that culinary tie that we appreciated good food, good whiskey. Um, and I have to say he was so well-liked by the tour guides and, and the management uh, because he always had just this calm demeanor. And the reason why I tell you all that is because I think that really helped me. Uh, when I was learning, because he took the time to explain things. The very first time that we met formally to train, this was my first lesson, he had a box of toothpicks and he had a glass of water, and then he had all these empty glasses, and I thought, oh, we're just going to taste a lot. And he, as he was talking, he was breaking up the toothpicks and putting them in water, and I thought that was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen, and I, I just didn't understand it. And he goes, he goes I'm going to let this sit for a minute, okay? And I said, sure, you know, go ahead. No problem. And then he came back to it about, you know, 10 minutes later and he goes, smell this plain glass of water. I nosed it. And then he goes, nose the one with the, the toothpicks in it. And I nosed it. And he goes, do you see the difference wood could make? And it was just uh, this, you Like, know, was he trying to mess with me or is he being serious? Well, I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was just his way of teaching. And mm-hmm. uh, little things like holding a Glencairn glass you know, and the small disc that goes on top to keep the aroma in, he would teach me how to move it back and forth so that I could look, you know, like an expert, you know, tasting it and tearing it off and then putting it back on very quickly. It reminds um, me of like somebody at the poker table. They're just rolling the chip in their in their hands right. or something. But but exactly. That, that's exactly. They were the basics. So I guess what I'm saying is I really honored the fact that he brought me to the basics. And then little by little, you know, we advanced our way into the distillery where I was drilling barrels and pulling samples and tasting. And so it was it was really a progression, I guess is the best way to answer that question. And again, it wasn't ready till he said, she's ready to conduct the tastings and send her around and do tastings. What are you still doing today in regards of a master taster role? Are you sure. actually helping with other distilleries and this sort of thing, like trying to dial it in of what they should be releasing or what their barrels should be at? I absolutely do. Um, it's several different levels. Uh, first, I'm a spirits judge uh, for the American Distilling Institute. So every year um, I go and taste product you know, from craft distillers and rate it and sometimes identify if it's, you know, hasn't been in the barrel too long or the still was dirty or the grains were moldy, you know, so we have to give a lot of feedback and that's kind of tricky. That is... That is tricky. I got to say that that job is, uh, that particular (laughs) competition or that style of competition... God bless you. It, it's, <laughs> it's probably it's I, don't, I don't do that one anymore. But it's I also, be, before we get too far from there, sure. I also want you to kind of um, explain when you just said, how can you tell if something, if the if there's something moldy in the still? Like, how can you how can you get that from the distillator? I think everybody knows that it hasn't been in the barrel long enough. Uh, it's just, a it's you know. a taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if it if the still isn't clean, you know, really clean, I can taste kind of wet corn husk that tastes kind of moldy uh, to me. Uh, there's a rubbery taste, you know, and that's a, that means something else. So it, it's all in what you have uh, memorized in your sensory, you know, as a good or not so great taste. And that helps guide me. Uh, any Anybody who is interested in knowing how to taste, I, I try to break it down and say it's really pretty easy. It's about food memory. If you know food flavors you know, like what burnt tastes like uh, or what real great savory juicy steak tastes like, you know, you can equate food flavors to whiskey tasting. 
Uh, and so the the uh, American Distilling Institute, uh, which we have tons of fun, you know, they have, they have about 70 judges, I think, now that come. Uh, so that's one area. And then for my clients, I do tasting profiles. So if it's a new product, I will actually dissect the flavors and come up with the vocabulary to describe it uh, and then teach the tour guides, you know, how to deliver that tasting. So that's a job that I do. And then, of course, um, doing food programs, food and bourbon programs, food and spirits programs. Uh, food pairings are kind of my specialty, and that's probably what I enjoy the most uh, when I'm doing tastings. Oh, well, there's one other thing that she applies her tasting skills oh, well, to. Oh, well, tell me. She writes for Bourbon Plus. No. She, well, she uh, does, how could she, I she possibly rates, uh, forget? <laughs> she, she does uh, tasting notes for the magazine. Yes, well. I do tasting Lee notes for the magazine and uh, do ratings <laughs> at times when I'm asked. But uh, I, I really have enjoyed that. Uh, Fred's taken a, a very different way of approaching descriptions of food pairings and uh, bourbon pairings. And so I've, I have really latched onto that because that's, that's my joy. That's what I really enjoy is describing uh, flavors in mm-hmm. the whiskey. So talk about a, a typical thing that when you are trying to do a food and a whiskey pairing or food and bourbon pairing, I mean, is it like, okay, on your left, we've got shrimp and grits and that goes well with bullet or we've got this and that kind of, kind of just walk through what's around on a plate here and how you would do sure. that. Well, the, the first thing that I try to have people do is just dissect the whiskey flavors in general. Because if you don't know what you're dealing with, there's no way you could possibly decide on what food that it's going to go with. And then I created something a long time ago called Balance, Counterbalance, and Explosion. And the balance side is simply when you take the whiskey and you taste a particular flavor of the whiskey that's you know pretty predominant, and then you match that flavor, let's say it's apple. You match that flavor to the food, and so it, let's say it's apple. You know, So a slice of apple, you taste apple in the bourbon, uh, so it's a balance. Nothing's overshadowing anything. Then counterbalance is when you take a food flavor or descriptor from the whiskey and you try to do something completely opposite. Very similar to if you were drinking a Riesling wine and eating a Cajun pecan. You know, the, the Riesling is so sugary sweet that it takes over the spice of the Cajun pecan, kind of dousing it. You can do the same with bourbon. With really heavy caramel notes and vanilla notes, I could take an Asian dish and have my bourbon with Asian food because it's actually going to, that caramel's going to wrap around that spice and it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then an explosion is when I want to really do surround sound tasting. And I might take a great, for example, you know, I've got a bottle of Peerless here. I might take a great chocolate note out of Peerless Rye, and then I'll have a really chocolatey, you know, truffle or majesca to go with it because it's almost like too much of a good thing. You know, you're trying to create a flavor that you can't even believe it, it it's taken over your mouth, and that's the explosion. Fred, did you know that you can pair bourbon with egg rolls? Because apparently you can. The only thing I've not been able to successfully pair uh, bourbon with has been like uh, fishier styles of sushi. Uh, like I can pair bourbon really well with salmon, but like uh, like let's say a spicy tuna roll. I've, mm-hmm. I've not been successful in finding. I've, I've been able to pair a scotch with that, but not a spicy. The scotch not, is so easy with seafood because of the salt. It really salty. is. Yeah. yeah, but there's not... Uh, when it, when it comes to some of those uh, more fleshier tunas, 
uh, when you get a little spice them, they're hard to pair to mm-hmm. for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, I mean, most of our listeners, they would say, well, of course you want to go with Jefferson's Ocean then because apparently it's supposed to bring in this briny, salty taste to it. What would what would be your response to that? Well, me? Well, I, or, or you? I, I, I think Jefferson's Ocean is... Uh, uh, sometimes it has brininess to it. Sometimes it doesn't. I don't always get it. Well, I remember I was very skeptical uh, the first time I heard you know about them putting it on the sea and all of this. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to taste this thing. And surprisingly, salt is not a descriptor that I use ever uh, when I'm doing whiskey profiles. And I will tell you, I really do get a little bit of that sea salt taste. Uh, the first Jefferson's. batches I did, and the later batches, I, I, it's been inconsistent for me. So what I try to do if I'm if I'm pairing with uh, Jefferson's is not to overdo the salt, you know, not to have a real savory mm. uh, dish to pair it with because I think it can overtake. So go ahead. Oh, I you know we're. I don't want to get too caught up in all the tasting side of things yeah. because we. I really want to talk about. Um, you know, bourbon women. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. I really want to talk about, um, you know, bourbon women. You you left uh, you left Woodford Reserve ninety or two thousand. Well, I left I left the comp I left Brown Foreman in two thousand eight and 2008. started my company in two thousand eight. Okay, and you know your company was a consulting company. You you've been a you know personal. Consultant, person, yes, an image consultant. And by the way, she's the reason why I have a, a beard. She's the one who instructed me. <laughs> I told you I've been trying. Yeah. I've been trying with Fred. <laughs> is this is this when he was baby faced when I, he had the goatee and you're like you gotta you gotta grow it out some more or is it was actually it, pro- it was it was started with the goatee. it started with the goatee. And then it was the other. It part. started with the goatee and I said fill it in. Yeah. I mm-hmm. said fill it in. 
But yeah, that's one of, um, I am an image and etiquette expert. And and believe it or not, that's come in very handy because I work in the hospitality industry. And so it's about the look and feel of your employees and professionals. So um, Fred's got- Wrote a book on it. I wrote a book called Mm -hmm. Professional Presence. uh, And I teach on that still, you know, to to many uh, organizations and corporations. But when she's with Bourbon Group, she just throws it all out the window. <laughs> I do. I do. I, I, I dress down. No, I'm just kidding. I was about to say, because I, I, I lost cause. Yeah. I was to say, because I didn't usually, wear a coat and tie to see me today. I did not. Yeah. But yeah. I also usually wouldn't know which one of the nine spoons I'm supposed to use that are in front of me sometimes at a nice dinner as well. Oh. <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny that you say that because that's where the bourbon industry's just been great because it's so approachable. And even though I'm an etiquette expert, and I had a woman at Bourbon and Beyond from California came up and she goes, Peggy, you're the Emily Post of Bourbon. And I kind of got a kick out of that because I wasn't sure how to take that. She goes, no, you're really teaching us, you know, how to do things and use things. But one thing, lesson I've learned from all these master distillers who I really admire is to make it approachable. You know, l- teaching people what to, they can do and how to enjoy it, but not making it intimidating for them to enjoy it. Because yeah. we don't want to make it untouchable. You don't like want people, people with ascots dictating things. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. You got to listen to what he says. His way or the highway. <laughs> so the inspiration for Bourbon Women. Yes. What was that? Well, I think Bourbon Women for me personally, I, my inspiration was when I was still working for Woodford because I would travel around the world. And when I would conduct tastings, uh, nine times out of 10, predominantly male. Uh, which was fine, but there'd always be like a little trickle of women in the back. And they would only come up to me after the tasting was over to ask questions, you know, or ask what I do for a living or or expand a little bit more on my career. And I always found that very odd that they wouldn't raise their hand when a lot of the men would be flooding me with questions, you know, during the seminar. And then I attended a women's weekend in Kiowa Island. And again, this was back in the 90s, early 2000s. And it was a women's weekend, not about whiskey. Uh, It was just a women's weekend where the hotel was uh, doing different things, excursions, et cetera, shopping, the normal thing. And they asked me to come in and do a bourbon tasting. And when I got there, I said, how many women, there's probably a hundred women in this room, how many women enjoy bourbon? No one raised their hand. Nobody. <laughs> well, I guess and we might I was as like, well get the Chardonnay uh, out. My time is over. Uh, but then I said, well, how many of you drink margaritas? They all raised their hand. Oh, yeah, now we're talking, now we're talking. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you something now that I think you'll appreciate. You know, uh, when you have a shot of tequila in front of you, you're probably less likely to drink that than you are to have a margarita. I said, so we're going to start slow, and I'm going to teach you how to taste bourbon and what cocktails you can put in bourbon. And then maybe you'll decide, you know, that bourbon's okay for you. And by the end of the night, we were singing uh, New York, New York and doing the can-can. Yeah, it was wildly successful. The women had fun. They loved it. And so I think that was part of my inspiration. Also, another event that I did uh, when I was at Woodford, I have a picture of it actually with Lincoln. Uh, we did a women's bourbon cigar and shopping night. And women came from all over Kentucky to attend it. Lincoln gave the tasting. Uh, We had a cigar aficionado there, you know, showing you how to smoke a cigar. And then we shopped and it was wildly successful. So in marketing, because I was in marketing for so long, I would be waving the flag saying, there are all kinds of women out there 
that want to be part of our franchise. But marketing dollars are marketing dollars, and the demographics skewed always to the male. Uh, and it was just really never took off. So when I started my own company, and there's a long way of explaining it, but when I started my own company, I said, I'm going to start my own damn thing. And so with Bourbon Women, I did focus groups across Kentucky, and I grabbed some really great friends of mine in over Manhattan's. We said, you know, let's let's test the market. Let's test these women. Let's see if they'd be enthusiastic about creating a platform, a conversation. So we did the focus groups. I got all my research together and I went to go see the one man in this industry who would tell me the truth and that was Bill Samuels. And I sat down with Bill Samuels and I said, Bill, I have an idea. And he was always great about listening to Mm -hmm. me. He truly was. Even though I worked for Woodford for years, I was in my own company, he didn't have time, you know, to talk to people like me. Uh, But I sat and I showed him all the, the things that we did with focus groups and he was like, you know what? I think you've got something here. He was the one, I used the word earlier, conversation. He was the one that said, Peggy, you're starting a conversation. That's what you got to do. You got to start a conversation with these women. So that gave me all the power I needed uh, to know that it must be something there. So we did an inaugural event at the governor's mansion. Uh, Fred was in attendance, and you, you should tell that story, actually. Um, when that's I gave what, the speech? Well, when, when, when we gave the speech and, and the catalyst for Whiskey oh. Women. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so when, she, uh, when she had came up with this, um, this idea to do Bourbon Women, she, one of the things that she would talk about was like women were some of the early distillers, and they were always a part of the industry. And Kenny, you know how it is when, you know, kind of my calling card, especially at that time, was to find, you know, kind of call people out a little bit. And I was looking into that. I was like, when I saw that, when she told me that, or I had saw it, I said, that's not true. You know, that, you know, no one's ever written about this. There's never been any, any, it's like, I was like, surely if there's, this is true, then brands would be all over and we'd have all kinds of brands named after women. And I started looking and she was right. And not only was she right, I found women that the brands didn't even know about. And so I said, not only is this awesome, I have a book here. And so that was kind of the catalyst for what became Whiskey Women. And really that that book more than anything propelled my career to where I am now. Mm-hmm. But it, it all, we joke and about I, this all I the just want to say, I haven't made a dime off that book. <laughs> I, I don't have commission. I don't have, uh, I don't have title. I don't have anything. Well, Movie rights. I don't have anything. Maybe, maybe Oscar will like play in the NBA or something. <laughs> and and all, uh, Oscar is Fred's son, by the way, and Godmother. He's probably going to be five, six. Yeah. <laughs> very unlikely, unless he can dribble really yeah, well. Yeah, well, he'll be, he'll the, be the anomaly, that's for the sure. The beauty of that whole story, though, is that Fred was unlocking something that he couldn't believe no one had. And so I was unlocking something that I knew needed to be unlocked. Yeah. And no, that was and and yeah. That moment that that's like, you know, you look back on life and you know there's probably a dozen moments where you're like that will always stand out and that was one of them. And to be honest with you, if you did not run with that, you know, I I cuz now well Bourbon Women was the first, but now they're Probably thirty women-centric whiskey groups. Sure, oh, in this absolutely, country, national, absolutely. And it started with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. We're really proud of the fact we were the first female consumer group uh, to talk to the industry, and now we're in six cities formally. 
Uh, we have thousands of women across the United States that attend. We've done over 200 events, if you can believe. Uh, and then we have our annual, what we call SIPposium, S-I-P, <laughs> SIPposium. 200 women came in uh, from 23 states this year to Kentucky to go on excursions, learn about whiskey, bourbon, the culture and heritage that surrounds our great state. And uh, it's been, I, I, I don't know how else to say it, it's more than networking. It's more than educating, which is what we stand about, but it's empowering. And these women come together from all over. They've never met each other. And the camaraderie, and that's why I always say bourbon brings us together. Yeah, It's a universal welcome. And bourbon women's not a demographic. We're a psychographic. You know, it's, it's, these women are, are love soft adventure. They're curious. Um, they have bravado, confident. A lot of them are really just professional women who want to have a little bit of an escape, you know, from the normal business life. Uh, and it, it's been probably, I would say, one of the best things I've ever done in my career. One of the things too, Kenny, that she's that they're doing is that they are getting data from their uh, from their members, and one they released some data recently about where they like to go, well, like right. on, on the Bourbon Trail, right? And that was stunning to me. It was like, yeah. What did you think about that? Uh, I was shocked. It was it, well, so it was Maker's Mark and Buffalo Trace. They were mm-hmm. kind of neck and neck. Those mm-hmm. are the two that I always recommend. But then after that, it was like, who wasn't on there? That shocked me. Like mm-hmm. we didn't see uh, Stitzel Weller. You know, we didn't really see any of the craft brands. Uh, Woodford had a small pie, uh, small piece of the pie. It, it, it was it was very stunning to me. Like what was appealing to bourbon women from a tourist perspective. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things we do do is pride ourselves on some of our research. And what we're trying to do is kind of debunk the myth to the industry. This was part of our mission that you have to pinkify a whiskey for a woman to like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we found universally, uh, whenever we do tastings with the women or whenever uh, we're at an event and we're doing surveys or blind tastings, they undoubtedly choose the spicier, more robust, and higher proof bourbon Booker's, as their pick. Uh, is a, I, if memory serves, Booker's almost always wins these things. Uh, when yes, you guys do it. yes. And also um, Heaven Hill did one where the Elijah Craig uh, barrel strength won. Nice. So that's part, that's really, that's information that helps the industry. Because again, you don't have to dumb it down for women. They like it like you like it. So as long as Jim Beam and Heaven Hill are listening, you figure out a new target for these brands. <laughs> it, you know, our co-host. They're coming Kenny, along. We're seeing more. Uh, mm-hmm. our, our, oh, yeah. Kenny, our co-host, Ryan, you know, he like, he's not here, but he he secretly likes flavored whiskeys. So <laughs> I, I don't think he would want uh, the brands that we <laughs> to be listening to that part. <laughs> the other question I kind of wanted to roll with this sure. as well is, you know, we've talked to groups about how they start um, bourbon societies and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Talk about what the the growth was here and was it was it small growth at first? Did you plateau in the past six months? Have you seen a hockey stick? Kind of what did this look For like? For bourbon women? Yes. Uh, I would say we shot off like a rocket uh, when we first began. And then just like when you're selling whiskey, it's easy to get into distribution, but then you need pull through or retention. You know, you need that second order. And because we were in Kentucky, I mean, it, it shot up, but until we went outside the borders of Kentucky, we plateaued a little bit. And then once Indianapolis came on, you know, Tennessee, DC, Chicago, 
uh, in these other cities wanted to be part of us. And that was the unexpected. I never designed bourbon women uh, to be something that we make a dollar off of. I never designed bourbon women uh, to really be a national organization. It was it really wasn't there for me at that time. The women spoke to us. The women demanded it. And we listened and we we stepped up and we said, okay, we're going beyond the borders of Kentucky. And that's when we really took off. How are you marketing it nowadays? Well, nowadays, of course, largely through the internet, um, largely through our website, uh, invitations. We have branch ambassadors in each of those cities that I mentioned that are creating events for women and excursions that they can go on. So that's a big piece of it. Are you using like meetup.com or yeah, something me, like uh, that? Yeah, we, we do Eventbrite. We do, you know, it, it, it might be a, what we call meet and neats, which are just real simple meet at a bar and have some cocktails together just to enjoy camaraderie. Or it might be a really formal event. Um, you know, as you said, camaraderie, they're looking to make new friends in a new city, something right, like right, that. Right. So kind of what is that, what is that profile well, of personality? Just the, the freshest information I have is just us coming off a symposium in August. And it really took me back because the women I, I were meeting, they had been to the last five symposiums and they keep coming back and coming back. But this time, for example, we had a woman that brought her five nieces, you know, all female nieces that were 21 and over. And they made an excursion of it. You know, there was an aunt, or I'm sorry, a mother who brought her her mother and grandmother to this event. We have a mother that brings the daughter who just turned 21. Uh, so we have women's weekends where oh, cool. a bunch of girlfriends are getting together and they want to go away and we're, we're the ticket. So we're seeing all kinds, single, married, grandma, you know, young 21 who just got her, her uh, you know, driver's license that says she can drink now. So all of those things, mm-hmm. all of those things, it's a combination. So is there, a, is there one that kind of fits more the bill than the other? Or is it just, it's I all across I the board? I wish I could say that, but we're all across the board. We are all across the board in age. We're all across the board uh, geographically. Uh, we're all across the board from mother, grandmother, daughter, aunt. And I love it. I think that's, that to me said, this is how women come together. Are you trying that's to do something that's that's unique as well, just for just for an all female audience versus something that would just be for a, a general bourbon meetup? Well, what's so interesting to me is more and more we're seeing more men come to our events because they think we do very buttoned up events and are very deep in the education, which is part of what we do and we're proud of. Uh, so we're seeing more and more men. Uh, so men can come to it, uh, but as far as the camaraderie of the women. Who are coming? Uh, it's they. It's what they want. It's they get as much as they want, how they want it. So I, I kind of want to also rewind a little bit uh, to some of the. I had some questions that were lined up from some of our listeners about oh, the, the distillery experiences and stuff like that. Sure. Some of the things that that they kind of wanted to know. Sure. And and one of them was kind of thinking about. What do you really feel that visitors are are looking to get away from an experience there? Like you mentioned earlier that they want to come away with some some vivid memory. Like what what else is there something that is maybe it's physical, maybe it is intangible. What what else do you think is is missing there? Well, you know, I've been in hospitality for 30 years and when you really boil down hospitality, it all goes back to human needs. You know, everyone wants to be heard or listened to or feel appreciated or feel special. Those are human needs. And so to your question, 
You know, I think aside from saying I had a great experience, when they meet a tour guide that treated them a little bit differently, that's a great memory. Or they Freddie Johnson's the best. Freddie example. Johnson is you know. magic. I mean, he's magic. That's what he does so well. I don't care what level of person he meets, where they're from, what they look like. Freddie Johnson's going to make you feel like you're the only person in the world. You think he could probably just go out and start consulting? He I don't could. think you. Could, I don't think he could teach what he has. Probably it, not. It, it's really an art. Yeah, it, I, it really is. As much as we do customer service training at different distilleries, and it, it's an art. And I can almost tell the people who have it or don't. Uh, after doing it this long. But to me, it's about human need and making you feel like you're the the only person in the room. And that's really what so many of our master distillers have done over there, like Jim uh, or um, uh, Jimmy Russell Mm -hmm. to me. I call him the gentleman distiller. He was always, and Fred and I just did um, at Bourbon and Beyond, you were on stage with us for the Jimmy Russell tribute. Mm -hmm. And that's what I quoted was he had that magic about him that there'd be a thousand people in the room, but he was only about you at that moment. So when you ask that question, what's the consumer looking for? What's the tourist looking for? They're looking for a special moment where they were recognized or they had fun with you. And and being part of somebody's memory, their entire memory of all the vacations they've gone on, you know, that's a real honor. So that's my philosophy of hospitality is to never forget you're part of, you're part of a family's memory for the rest of their life. I think that's accurate for probably 99.9% of them. But then there's the crotchety old <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. bourbon geeks. You yeah, know. there are. They're what, out there. What are you, how do you, uh, how, how do you prepare your staffs for, for the guy who knows everything and won't hear it otherwise? Well, the only way that you can deal with what I call a difficult person, and I see these sometimes in the tastings I do. I'm sure you do. And oh, you yeah. do. There's always one in the crowd oh, that knows more me, than they're, you. They're, they're always old ladies for me. Like I always have <laughs> I an old lady who will come with up an old lady. Like, bourbon has to be from Kentucky. I'd love to deal with them. Well, uh, first of all, my advice always to diffuse the situation because usually when you have a difficult person, they love being in the spotlight and they want to draw attention to themselves. So you have to kind of diffuse that person, like pull them aside and say, oh, let's have this conversation over here and get them away from the crowd. You know, or, oh, great question. Do you mind if when we're on break, you know, we, we ask, we, I'll answer that in a, just a little bit. Because when you diffuse it and pull it away and kind of still the thunder, um, it, it definitely helps. It definitely helps. One thing I don't think we did touch on that we need to before we wrap it up is about the, the kind of how you pioneered the, the bourbon trail as well. Oh, okay. That's right. Yes. We definitely need to, to kind of talk about that. Be What the, the original process was, the idea, who did you say something to? I heard at first it was just a brochure. Like, Oh, it was definitely just a brochure. Uh, but what's really a funny story, uh, and it was more out of, I think, trying to do our job than it was great marketing, creative minds. There were two women uh, in the industry that one worked at uh, Maker's Mark, Dor- or, let's see, Donna Nally. And then Doris Calhoun worked at Jim Beam. And we were all visitor center directors. I was at Woodford. And we were friends because, and that's the great thing about our industry too, even though we were competitors, we were also friends. We really enjoyed each other's company. We would travel to tourism shows and we would drink each other's bourbon, you know, and taste each other's bourbon. And we just had fun together. But we were all in the same boat. We had to bring people to the visitor center. 
And so we start talking about it and we said, you know, people are going to see you and they're going to see you and they're going to see me. I wonder if we did some kind of, you know, uh, cross-marketing that these visitors could come to all of our facility and we market all together, you know, in a way that it's kind of a road trip. So that being said, um, Ed O'Daniel, who I don't know if you know that name yeah, or not, KDA, yeah. he was the Eric Gregory of, of KDA at the time. And we took it to him and said, hey, why don't we bring all the distilleries together and put it in a brochure and market it so that, you know, people have a choice to go everywhere. And maybe we'd save some money on marketing and maybe we would get more traffic. And so over a million stops later, as reported this past year, a million, over a million stops on the, on the Bourbon Trail. Uh, and I'm very, very proud of that. And Eric Gregory, in my opinion, when he came on board, really brought the Bourbon Trail to life uh, and, and put it in a marketing highlight uh, and importance and priority so that our infrastructure that all of our distilleries are investing in would pay off. And, and it's worked. And it's worked. So, yeah, so I, I can't take credit that it was me, but it was a, a small team of women. I mean, how cool is that to say, like, you were part of the team that spearheaded the Bourbon Trail? What is now probably the, the most successful tourist um, strategy in Kentucky? Oh, it, easily. Yeah, I mean, it's, it goes hand in hand with, with wine country. Yeah. And again, I will say I have not gotten a commission or <laughs> anything uh, we'll rebated back to. <laughs> Something's happening here. We'll get you a plaque. I don't know. Something's coming to life here. I hope here. you're getting something <laughs> out of these visitor experiences that you're uh, setting up for people. Should have just taken a penny from every transaction at every distillery and then you would you could yeah. have retired forever. But you know, you know, really, at the end of the day, um, when I think of the industry and how great it's been to me and the legacy that I want to leave. You know, these are the types of stories that I hope people will say, you know, um, and I hope I'm not finished. I think there's more to come. Oh, no, I think I got actually, more in me. We're, we're starting to see uh, the next wave of Peggy No Stevens. Yes, and we that, are. And that's the writer. She's, uh, uh, she wrote me uh, some time ago and said, I'm going to be your best writer before it's all over. <laughs> and, I'm uh, competitive that yeah, way. And I said, I said, <laughs> All right. <laughs> and we'll uh, her, her stories have been fantastic. Well, fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do have one more question about sure. this Bourbon Trail map. How many were there on there when the first one was released? I believe seven. Mm -hmm. And what do we have now? 23 plus? Was Buffalo Trace on it back then? It was called Ancient Age. Oh, so Ancient Age yes, was on it back Buffalo then. Trace was on there. They were called Ancient Age. Um, yeah, they split in what, Wild 2009? Turkey. Pardon me? The, the, the KDA Buffalo Trace. I don't book. remember that was 2009, the date. I don't I think. remember the date. Yeah. Uh, but it was seven. And the reason why that was top of mind, I just gave a presentation uh, to uh, Bourbonomics Business First. Yeah. And it was kind of a walk down memory lane for me because they were asking about the, the trends that we're seeing today in our industry. So I had to kind of roll it back to the Bourbon Trail. And I had a picture of one of the original brochures, and it was seven of them. Mm hmm. That's, wow. that's really cool to look back and, and think of, oh, yeah, seven. That, mm -hmm. was, that was nice. That was I nice know. back then. It, yeah, and it, just to see the infrastructure and investment that we've created is really spectacular. Was uh, Stitzel Weller on that list? No. On the first seven? Mm -mm. No. no. All right, let's, let's who, who, so it was Wild Turkey, Well, let me think. Are you going to make me count? Uh, well, yeah. it was a Maker's Mark, okay. uh, Jim Beam, Woodford, who am I forgetting? Um, Ancient Age, Wild Turkey, and who am I forgetting? Four Roses, maybe? Yeah, Four Roses. That's interesting. What's six? Yeah, I know. I'm trying to think of who else was know, on there. Because Heaven Hill didn't have a visitor center just, then. Not then. 
Um, but we just, I'll have to go back and look, but I know it was seven that I saw. Maybe the, well, it wouldn't have been the Boston plant for nope. Beam. Um, that nah, anyway. <laughs> I'll pull the brochure. I'll pull the, I'll pull the original. Oh, we're going to, we're going to, like, first, 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 so first, long ago. first person to comment gets a, gets a free ascot right. Right, from Fred. Right. <laughs> hey, I got a new one on today. I noticed that <laughs> actually. Like I do. Mm-hmm. I, I like do. the black polka dot. I can tell it's quality from where I'm sitting. Yeah. It's, this is, this is probably from the fifties actually the way. That, really? Yeah. You know, did you, did you actually consult him and say you should buy somewhere in an ascot? Uh, no, no. No, he he came up. I want to make clear to all the audience <laughs> that the ascot was his idea. Are you suggesting that I should have said I should have moved, moved forward with it? Not Too at late all. now. Not at Too all. Late now. We all have our signature. We all have our signature. We all have our signature. Uh, okay, then. I didn't see that. <laughs> I love when I can. You know, surprise him, yeah, right? right? Mr. <laughs> Journalist. Well, Peggy, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the oh, show today. Fun. This it's was fun. fun. It was a good conversation. I'm sure that, as Fred said, there's going to be more stories to tell down the road. So hopefully we'll get you to bet. capture those at some point as well. So if somebody does want to get in contact with you, because I know you recently just started really getting on Instagram. So how can people know more about you, website, social sure. profiles? Well, I have like a new that. website coming out in December, but for now, um, well, they can reach me at pstevens at peggynostevens.com. That's my email, or Peggy No Stevens for the website. Awesome. And your Instagram handle is P Stevens. Yeah. P Stevens. There you go. Find our Instagram. Find me as well as Fred on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. And if you do like what you hear, make sure you support the show on Patreon, P A T R E O N dot com slash Bourbon Pursuit. And now that you've had the opportunity to listen to two of the writers of Bourbon Plus, go ahead, get yourself a subscription out there because Woo-hoo. it comes right to your door. It's an easy way to uh, sit back and have some uh, has some throne time, I guess. Reading, if you want to look at it that way, is a very bad, another bad image for it. Right? <laughs> you know, the associations they're, just, they're really just coming to me today, you know. Uh, but also, if you have any other show suggestions, things you'd like to hear, send us an email: team at bourbonpursuit.com. With that, I want to say thank you again, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see everybody next week. Thank awesome. you. Cheers. Mm-hmm.